Hello, everyone, and welcome back to COVID and the Classroom, a podcast dedicated to getting kids back to school, putting parents in positions of power, and navigating the new world of education in the time of coronavirus. I'm your host, Mary Claire Amsalem. So if you've been listening to the show, you know that I've argued that forcing students to learn over Zoom without giving parents another option is not just bad policy, but it's wrong. Virtual learning has been around for a long time. It works for some families, but it really doesn't work for a lot of families. And so what can actually be done? What can Congress do? Is there a bill sitting there on Capitol Hill that could actually make a difference for American families? Well, who better to ask than a member of Congress? I'll be joined later in the show by Congressman Ted Budd of North Carolina. Congressman Budd is a member of the Republican Study Committee that just came out with a new report called Reclaiming the American Dream, a vision to empower today and tomorrow's workers. This report contains over 100 policy proposals to aid the American worker, including a lot of promising education proposals. So I'm very excited for that discussion. I'll also be joined by my Heritage Foundation colleague, Jonathan Butcher, who just published a report on the issue of disparate impact in our schools. Jonathan breaks down the issue for us and discusses how issues of school discipline need to be left to localities and specifically teachers, rather than tying the hands of educators through burdensome regulations. But first, let's get into today's headlines. First up, public school superintendent who warned that pod-based learning causes inequalities is sending his own kid to private school. According to Reason.com, Alexandria City Public Schools, ACPS, Superintendent Gregory Hutchins has been proud to call himself a parent of two children who attend public school. Until recently, his website and Twitter biography both made reference to his children's enrollment at ACPS. But now, Hutchings has pulled one of his kids from ACPS, which remains all virtual, to the frustration of many parents, and instead enrolled the child in a private Catholic school currently following a hybrid model, some distance learning and some in-person education. Hutchings said, I can confirm that our family made the decision to change my daughter's school this year. Decisions like these are very personal family decisions that are not taken lightly. This in no way impacts my absolute lifelong commitment to public education to which I remain personally dedicated as ever. Now, I don't bring up this story to in any way bash this family's decision. In fact, I think it's fabulous. I think it's wonderful that this family sat down and said, you know what, the virtual learning, it's not working out for us. So we're going to pull our daughter out and send her to a school that's working for her. The reason I bring this up is because of the hypocrisy. School choice for me, but not for thee. We see this constantly. We constantly see politicians who bash school choice programs secretly sending their own children to private schools. We saw this with Elizabeth Warren, who is very vocally anti-school choice, send her own child to a private school. Again, I think that's fantastic, but I think all families should have this choice. Now, the families in the Alexandria City public school system are very frustrated with the virtual learning and are frustrated that there hasn't been more of a push from the superintendent to get kids back to school, to find some way to you know, perhaps do a, a hybrid model like this private school is doing. But instead, ACPS remains in all virtual learning through the entire fall semester, yet the superintendent is not educating his own children through that model. The hypocrisy is certainly very frustrating for many parents. I think reasons Bobby Suave said it perfectly. He wrote, 
It's hard to blame Hutchings for trying to do right by his own child, but he is in a position to do right by thousands of other kids who don't have the same opportunity to simply opt out of a completely inadequate Zoom education. He could prioritize reopening APCS, which is slated to remain all virtual for the entire fall semester. One wonders why some in-person learning has been deemed necessary for some families, but not for others. I think that's, that's exactly right. I think that we should be calling out the hypocrisy. Next up, this is pretty interesting. So you've heard about a gap year between high school and college, but now I'm here to tell you that there's a new gap year emerging called the kindergarten gap year. According to Politico, parents across the nation are skipping kindergarten in droves during the most tumultuous school year in generations. Frustrated by the thought of sticking their five-year-olds in front of screens during the pivotal first year of school, they're sending their children to extended preschool, forming learning pods, or foregoing formal instruction altogether. The 74 reports districts nationwide are reporting steep drop-offs in kindergarten enrollment, especially in low-income communities. One researcher estimated, based on a national sample, that as many as 600,000 children might not be starting kindergarten on schedule this year. I think this is really fascinating. And it shows that parents, one, are, are doing exactly what we've been talking about on the show, which is exercising their parental rights, saying, you know, not really working out for me. I'm going to pursue another option. But I think it's interesting that a lot of parents are foregoing formal instruction altogether. We've seen a lot of push in this country and around the world for starting school earlier. The evidence is iffy on this at best. I've heard a lot of comparisons made to riding a bicycle. Does learning to ride a bicycle earlier necessarily make you a better cyclist? The answer is no. But there's certainly a lot of advantage to exposing your kids to things early, reading to them so that they're, they're learning a lot of words, expanding their vocabulary. That's certainly important. But should that be used to justify forcing parents to send their kids to school younger and younger, taking them out of the home? Absolutely not. In France, the president recently announced his plan to ban homeschooling. If you listened to the last episode, you know that I'm probably not a fan of that idea. But he's talking about banning homeschooling and making a requirement to send your children to school as young as three years old. So if you are a parent who was planning on staying home with their children, it's going to become illegal for you to do that. So I think it's interesting to point to, to highlight that parents are foregoing a kindergarten year because they don't think it's necessarily important. They certainly don't think it's worth torturing their kids, you know, with Zoom for, for several hours a day. Yet we also have this push to push children to school earlier and earlier and, and completely eliminate the option for parents to keep their own children at home. We should definitely be constantly talking about this and pushing back on this trend. I would like to pivot for a second to what's going on in higher education. We don't talk about higher ed a ton on this show, but it's definitely very interesting to look at what's going on with higher education reopenings. We've seen some successes, some major failures, but I'd like to share some good news on this show. We could all use a little bit of good news. So Quinnipiac University in Connecticut has reported just one coronavirus case um, from the more than 11,500 campus tests administered since August. By comparison, the flagship University of Connecticut system reports 64 cases among the 5,000 students' residential population at their campus. 
A combination of low infection rates in communities that surround schools and multi-million dollar pandemic management strategies appear to slash the opportunities for the disease to enter the campus and fester among students and staff. Uh, this is a report from Politico, and I just think it's really interesting that we're seeing such disparities between major outbreaks going on at universities and then universities like Quinnipiac, who are reporting just a single case of coronavirus. The good news is that we're, we're seeing thousands and thousands of cases come from universities. So it's easy to get really discouraged saying that universities are being super spreaders and we're continuing this, this virus. But a survey of 50 universities associated with 70,000 reported positive cases of coronavirus found only three hospitalizations and zero deaths associated with these universities reopening. So that's the good news. And, and I think it's important to keep highlighting that is that the, the concern that we have, we obviously need to get this virus under control. We don't want it to keep spreading through our universities. But again, young people are doing very, very well. And so that's some great news. And let's focus on the positive here, people. Three hospitalizations and zero deaths. I think that's fantastic. A lot of schools have been grappling with, you know, if a student tests positive, should we send them home? Dr. Anthony Fauci has said that's the worst thing you can do. You should not be sending positive students back to their homes and just spreading it in those communities. So schools are coming up with innovative ways to, to keep it under control at campus, like isolation housing and things like that. My brother's at Colgate University, and when he went back to school, everyone got tested before they got there. It was on lockdown, complete isolation for two weeks, then got tested again. They're in slow stages of reopening. It was an interesting way to do that. He had people come deliver food to his dorm and, you know, not fun, not fun for a lot of students, but it seems to have been working for them. And it certainly has been working for Quinnipiac University. So good news coming out of college reopenings, despite what some of the numbers might say. I am so pleased to be joined this morning by Congressman Ted Budd, who represents North Carolina's 13th Congressional District and is serving his second term in the 116th United States Congress. Ted and his wife, Amy Kate, have three children and live in Davie County, North Carolina. He holds an MBA from Wake Forest University and a master's in educational leadership from Dallas Theological Seminary. Congressman, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Mary Claire, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So the Republican Study Committee uh, just came out with a report last month called Reclaiming the American Dream, a Vision to Empower Today and Tomorrow's Workers. And I've spoken a lot on this podcast about not only the unique moment for education that we're in today, but specifically how hard this is for children. Um, and as you know, we at the Heritage Foundation have been vocal advocates of school choice for quite a long time now, but it's never been more important than it is today during this pandemic. Can you tell us a little bit about this report and specifically how it addresses the current educational climate that we find ourselves in today? Well, absolutely. So, um, you know, after this pandemic hit, the task force went back to the drawing board um, to really redesign uh, the recommendations for the COVID age. And we need these policies for reclaiming the American dream. We need them more now than ever to help get our country and our economy back on track and to allow American workers and families to thrive. And here's a, a good example, and it's the inclusion of the additional school choice policies. Now, the Republican Study Committee has long been a champion of school choice, 
But the situation during the pandemic highlighted the needs for parents to have better educational options for their children. Our proposals focus on empowering students instead of the system, which we've really seen highlighted lately, from early childhood education all the way through higher education and lifelong learning. Um, and, you know, the pandemic has only further highlighted that successful educational policy gives students and families opportunity and liberty, not top down policies and big government. So that's a little bit kind of the framework of how we've uh, approached this recently. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Very well said. And children are, are really struggling these days with virtual learning. We're hearing so many stories of kids saying that this just isn't working out for them. This isn't how they had planned on going to school. This isn't how parents had envisioned dealing with, with the, the school year this year. And students just simply shouldn't be uh, expected to sit in front of a computer screen for as many hours a day as that we're asking them to. What would you say to, to families who are really struggling with virtual learning and who have lost access to their, their typical school option? Well, you see it for a couple of different reasons. Um, and as you know, the districts change continually, it seems, in North Carolina. Uh, but we have a much more rural area that I intend to be representing in this next Congress. And one of the main struggles there is rural broadband. Um, and I've supported the Rural Act, which makes sure that we have money for broadband. It's already in force of law now. We have to make sure the dollars get there to make sure that these students that are in more, uh, they're not disadvantaged except for by broadband. And they've really struggled. I mean, it's very frustrating. We know what it's like. Let's say that, you know, we're on this call here and we're having audio problems. That's very frustrating. But they're trying to get their whole education over uh, what essentially is a Zoom type uh, video conference call. And it's very frustrating. But also it involves parents or maybe grandparents or it, it, it hurts the maybe a single parent's ability to get to work. Uh, so very frustrating. And, um, uh, you know, our, our empathies are with them. The main answer is really let's reopen. Um, our schools, we can do it safely. But um, we know that even before the pandemic, the U.S. public school system, it trapped students in schools that were subpar and restricted the ability of parents to find better options for their children. But now, uh, you know, that schools are closed. They're going on Zoom and, um, uh, you know, it, it just causes a lot of issues. But we, we think we can tackle this and we're getting smarter by the month. So, of course, the, the pandemic hasn't just been a massive disruptor in terms of education. It's also been a massive disruptor in our economy. We saw people out of work overnight. This has completely turned everything up on its head. And we know from history that during harsh economic times, it's never more important to make sure that people are getting an adequate education to ensure that they can be you know, prosperous, able-bodied working adults. The task force report does have this recurring theme of achieving the American dream and empowering the American worker. Can you talk a little bit about how the report connects those dots between the education of our, of our young people and the success of the American worker? Yeah, they have to be absolutely connected. Um, when, when we are educating our young people, we wanna make sure that they know that there's an economic outcome likely associated with their education. What we've seen develop over the past decades is a bachelor or bust mentality. And it's a myth that's pushed by the left that a four-year degree is really the only pathway to success. It's not true. And we think the mentality pushes students into degrees program that they don't need. And many students regret taking on debt to enroll in a four-year program when they could have explored more lucrative or less costly options or done some sort of hybrid model where they've got prerequisites done, maybe at a community college, and then go into their uh, their specialty or their major at uh, a four-year institution. 
all sorts of combinations, including technical education. Uh, Mary Claire, conservatives believe that education is a deeply personal choice. And we recognize that there are several paths to career success, including, like I mentioned before, uh, skilled trades, technical education. Absolutely. And, and this is a really great transition into, into what I would like to talk about next, which is higher education. And, and on this podcast, we've been very K-12 heavy, but higher education is actually where I, I spend most of my of my time you know, in, in the research world um, because it, it's very frustrating to see a lot of these proposals coming from the left, talking about free college, talking about loan forgiveness that completely ignore uh, the root issues taking place in higher education, uh, uh, cost inflation, uh, degree inflation, this, uh, this idea, this bachelor bus mentality, I think that's a great way to put it. Um, you know, most recently, the House Democrats proposed a bill for giving up to $10,000 in student loans. Former Vice President Biden's proposal talks about having uh, student loan payments through restructuring his income-based repayment plan. What solutions does the Republican Study Committee and the task force offer that contrasts that narrative, saying that everyone should go to college and we should forgive all student loan debt? Well, a lot of this is the result of out-of-control tuition and burdensome student debts. They're the result of ill-conceived federal policies that subsidize higher education with taxpayer dollars, which creates an incentive for institutions to keep raising tuition and encourages students take out large loans to cover these increased costs. So it's a, it's an upward spi- spiral that we're finally uh, now realizing. It, it, it's a bit too late, but we think that these failed federal policies, they hold a lot of Americans back. They're not making major life decisions as a result of school debt. And we know that tuition can be daunting for a lot of these would-be students and workers with crushing student debt. But we can't go the way of the left like we saw uh, you know, the recent vice presidential debates. Uh, we, they want to double down on these mistakes and they want to expand free college and loan forgiveness, which really doesn't deal with the core issues here. You know, um, all of this goes at the cost of the American taxpayers, which includes these future students. Um, we believe that higher education should be an option, but we know real reforms need to happen for that option to be available for the American students and families. One smart task force proposal would be to give schools like a skin in the game type of approach requiring students or schools to pay some percentage of a graduate's debt if the default rates of their graduates pass a certain threshold. Uh, This policy would hold schools accountable, essentially, for the value of the degrees that they're providing for the students. Skin in the game is such an important topic in higher education, because I think what what so often gets lost in this conversation is that 90% of all student loans come from the federal government. And so you have virtually a federal government takeover of higher education, where you have billions and billions of dollars every year pouring into these institutions. uh, And and there's virtually no underwriting that happens when, uh, when the federal government offers students a loan. And so there's no incentive for colleges to keep their costs low. And they don't have any skin in the game if you leave college after taking out that massive loan on the backs of American taxpayers and you're unable to compete in our economy. You're unable to get a job that will enable you to pay off that loan. The, the school already got paid. They already got paid. They're doing great. They can raise tuition on the next person. It doesn't matter to them uh, necessarily that a student leaves and is unable to pay back their loans. And that's not right. And so what Skin in the Game is really saying is that schools need to 
take some responsibility for the quality of the product that they're producing. And especially if we are financing it the way that we are, we need to definitely make sure that schools are held accountable a little bit. Um, this is also a problem of uh, uh, a lack of a robust private lending market. If we had a private lending market, uh, we would have lenders who would issue loans to students based on important factors uh, like their ability to pay it back. Like, uh, where are you going to school? What do you want to study? Do you have a plan to pay this back? Do you have any idea how much money you're asking us for? Those types of questions that should be asked of young people, but just quite frankly aren't because of these very, very generous federal loan programs that have gotten us into this very deep debacle. Uh, so a, a resurgence of, of private students lending you know what what is the uh, what is the the RSC and the, the task force uh, position on on getting the federal government out of student loans and allowing the private market to come in and put some downwards pressure on tuition prices you know Mary Claire I think it's a long road back there where we were before but I think it's a good road uh, students need to have uh, that economic connection between what they're studying where they're spending their time and the economic outcomes and right now, just because of the federal involvement, that seems very disconnected and it's a real disservice to our students who are going to face major financial decisions and one of the biggest financial decisions they're taking without any information and without any economic connection. And I think that's a great disservice. So as RS, RSC and conservatives, uh, we would totally support uh, helping the, uh, the private market to flourish, not just in the RSC, but on my committee that I serve on the Financial Services Committee. That would be something we, we could do. Uh, we would certainly support only a small fraction, like less than 10% of uh, educational loans are, are even private. Now, the vast are federal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's always surprising to me how many members of Congress don't seem to know that when talking about the, the private lending. You hear so often from the left, well, we have to go after these horrible private lenders. And I just want to pull my hair out and say, what are you talking about? This is 10% of the market. 90% of the market is the federal government. So when talking about predatory loans, I, I see that entirely coming from federal student loans rather than the private market. So the, the report has dozens of proposals. It's really a fantastic report. I encourage all of our listeners uh, to to go ahead and take a look at this report, especially if you're feeling like, you know, what legislative avenues do we have to address a lot of these issues that's going on today? It's a really fantastic report. Are there any other uh, aspects of the report that you would like to highlight uh, uh, before we before we leave here today? You know, I think some of the proposals in the report, and again, thanks for uh, Mary Claire for re reviewing this and, and highlighting it. But a lot of the reports are based on existing legislation that's been developed by my colleagues. Um, other proposals are fairly new ideas and we hope to develop into legislation. So it's a combination of both. And we really look forward to working with allies and experts like you and your colleagues at the Heritage Foundation and to get many of these moving forward. So we appreciate the, the win that you put in our sales. Thank you so much. I think that that's such a great note to leave it on. Uh, Congressman, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you, Mary Claire. I am now joined by my colleague, Jonathan Butcher, who is a senior policy analyst in the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation, to talk about a new paper that he recently came out with called Misusing Disparate Impact to Discriminate Against Students in School Discipline. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Great to be with you. 
So tell us a little bit about this paper. It, it has both uh, legal and education policy aspects to it. I should mention that you you co-authored this report with our colleague Hans von Spakovsky. So tell us a little bit about what disparate impact is and what prompted uh, the two of you to uh, author this paper together. Thanks, Mary Claire. I think many people will remember the tragic incident that happened in Parkland, Florida from a couple of years ago, and that really changed the way that we began to think as a society about school safety. Uh, following that, sadly, of course, there was another tragic incident that year in Texas. And what policymakers and families and observers began to do is to trace the policy of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida back to a federal policy that dated from 2014 and the Obama administration. And uh, at the time, what, what we began to realize was that some schools, particularly very large school districts, were being incentivized by the Office of Civil Rights uh, at the U.S. Department of Education to limit the suspension and expulsion of students of certain ethnicities. And now this idea, I mean, this concept in itself has um, legal implications to it. It certainly has policy implications to it. And as we saw at what happened in Parkland, it certainly has school safety tied in it. So what brought us to this point and, and why Hans and I felt it important to be talking about this issue now is that even though the U.S. Department of Ed under the Trump administration rescinded the Obama era policy, many of these large districts, Broward included, which is where Stoneman Douglas is located, are still operating with this kind of policy. Our colleague, Max Eden, who might be a, a name familiar to, to some of our listeners, came out with a book co-authored with um, Andrew Pollack, who is the father of one of the students killed in Parkland, Florida, called Why Meadow Died, that really goes into this issue. It's a heartbreaking book. I, I started crying like in the foreword, I think. It's a really heartbreaking book, but it gets at this issue of, you know, it seems so long ago, we have so many issues plaguing our country right now, but, you know, not too long ago, gun violence in schools was a major issue that was captivating our country. And we were talking, the, the whole national conversation was, how do we protect kids? How do we protect kids? And we've sort of gone away from that. But what this book talks about and what and what your paper really gets at, too, is that there's a, a school discipline issue underlying a, a lot of the problems that we're seeing around school safety. Can you talk a little bit about the autonomy of teachers in their classrooms to set the tone and be in charge of how discipline is done in their classrooms and how some of these federal policies have taken that autonomy away from teachers out of the classroom? Well, I think you nailed it right there. I, I think that's really what this comes back to is that under the initiative from the Obama, Obama administration, it suggested that schools should operate under an idea called disparate impact, which is a technical term uh, in the legal world that essentially says if you have a policy that even if on its face or as designed is not meant to have any sort of discriminatory impact on students based on their ethnicity, if it still results in numerically certain people from uh, certain ethnicities being impacted more than others, that is called a disparate impact. And so uh, policy should be designed to limit essentially certain levels of data gathering. And that's what schools were doing. They were saying, we need to have a particular ratio 
of students disciplined from different backgrounds, particularly we're talking especially about black students and Hispanic students, because, you know, oftentimes these students are concentrated in uh, areas where there is a high crime, dangerous neighborhoods, um, high levels of poverty, single parent homes. There's a, a complex of factors that go into what students are bringing to school. And when you concentrate them in certain areas, as happens in cities, right, Los Angeles, um, Chicago, of course, Broward County, which is the sixth largest district in the U.S., um, that's where they bring to school a lot of the difficulties uh, from home or from their neighborhood. So that brings us to your question about teachers. And if you have administrators saying, hey, look, you can't punish students at certain levels, that takes away the ability of a teacher to maintain order in their classroom. And we found, as Max did uh, in his a lot of the surveys and the research that he's done, that teachers report this. They report that they are not able to maintain order and that they don't necessarily, they don't feel safer in schools that are using this um, limitation on exclusionary discipline. And it, it hurts students. I mean, when, when teachers not able to, to maintain order in their own classrooms by, by taking away the power for them to suspend students, expel students, you know, even send them to the principal's office, um, it, it, students are the ones who are affected by this. Because if, if students not feeling safe in their own classroom because of other students, uh, they can't possibly focus on, you know, the math equation on the board. There's just no way. Um, so it, it's so important that, that we're always empowering teachers to have that autonomy in their classroom. Um, the second sort side of this, and I guess the reason why you co-authored this paper with Hans von Spakovsky, is because there there is a legal aspect to this argument. Can you can you briefly break it down for us? You know, what are the legal elements at play when talking about disparate impact? Yeah, thanks, and that's a great question. There, are, so there are two points to our two sides to the paper that we put together, and one was a review of the literature that examines student behavior and how that affects levels of student discipline. Um, there is a, there has been what appears to be an effort among social scientists to conduct research that tries to um, tries to um, identify implicit bias among educators. Uh, perhaps all around the country, and uh, why they discipline um, uh, particularly Black and Hispanic students in the way that they do. They have not been able to do so. They have not been able to find a, a causal relationship in some form of bias and uh, student discipline. And that's why the behaviors of these students and taking into account their family situation, the situation of, again, crime and violence in the areas where they are, uh, you know, any number of, of personal factors um, uh, become important in this conversation. And it's why we've got to have, uh, I, I think, a real discussion about not just school policy, but also uh, what's going on with their neighborhoods and and um, uh, what we're doing to help those communities establish a, um, a robust um, uh, civil society. So that's so that's the research side. Uh, on the legal side, um, it, there are actually cases dating back into even the mid to uh, late 90s uh, addressing this issue of disparate impact and saying that it does in fact do what we've been discussing. It causes uh, schools in particular to create quotas uh, with how they measure student discipline instead of focusing on keeping students safe. Uh, there are a number of cases 
um, uh, in the lower courts leading um, uh, up to the Supreme Court uh, that have identified this issue, and Hans discusses those and uh, why that is an important part of the uh, of the legal framework around designing school policies like this. And it's why when the federal government got involved, you know, under the Obama administration, uh, that had, had serious legal implications to it as well. Um, I think one of the things that we close with in the paper is that at the end of the Obama administration, they issued uh, some rules that would also have limitations on disciplining students with special needs. Um, there is already in law some provisions around how students with special needs um, uh, should, should be uh, treated and handled when it comes to this issue of school discipline. Um, and this, of course, as you can imagine, with students with different needs has some pretty unique features to it. Secretary DeVos's Department of Education attempted to delay the implementation of that rule because they were afraid of this issue of creating quotas instead of uh, accounting for student needs and what was best for them. Uh, a judge ruled last year that uh, DeVos agency, the education agency, could not delay it or stop it, and so now it is in place. And what this means is that this concept, this philosophy of disparate impact, actually it is permeating um, into uh, uh, federal law, uh, in particular now in uh, the area of special needs. So, you know, really, I'll finish with this, you know, I think what it comes back to is being able to take into account um, each incident by its merits, um, treating students as um, valuable as individuals and understanding that uh, their situations may be unique. And it's important to take that into account uh, as we consider uh, keeping them safe, both the perpetrators or, or those accused of, uh, of being um, a threat to their peers, uh, as well as their peers and the other children in the classroom. Yeah, I, I think we, we have a horrible habit as a society nowadays of, of ascribing the worst possible motives to people when something's happening uh, that, that perhaps we disagree with or perhaps we you know want to look into more. We just assume, we love to assume the worst in people. And so I think it's so great and important that you all are, are highlighting the research saying, you know, there's not evidence that the teachers are, are, are biased people or have, have bad motives. Um, a, a lot of this stuff is simply about maintaining the the ability for teachers to have control in their classroom. Um, to wrap up, I just want to ask you about something. So you and I were chatting the other day, and you said that um, uh, most of the emails you're getting uh, that come across your desk are, are about this issue of critical race theory. And uh, it's something that I mentioned on the podcast before, but I didn't really dig into it. And so, you know, you have inadvertently sort of become a critical race theory expert, but you're an education policy analyst. So can you talk a little bit about how those worlds collide and how in this conversation about disparate impact, why critical race theory has sort of become this big issue nowadays? Yeah, and that's, and that's a, another great question. And because it's so relevant, I mean, as those who have followed the Trump administration's actions on this issue, uh, the, his administration now has said that if there are diversity type trainings that are being contracted with in federal agencies, that uh, those 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 contracts won't won't uh, won't happen anymore. Um, and this there's a concept in this philosophy of critical race theory, which dates critical theory itself is sort of the larger umbrella. It's an academic uh, discipline or it's an academic theory that dates back, I mean, really, we're talking 100 years now. Um, and it, it is based around the idea that uh, there is not an objective truth. There are only the narratives or our perceptions of the world around us. And that became, um, there became all sorts of offshoots from this in legal theory, uh, in feminist theory, uh, in now race theory. 
Um, and this, uh, there, there is now with critical race theory, this idea that we can only see the world through the lens of race. Everything is permeated by race. And so every policy, every discussion uh, has to be held against the backdrop that race is a driving issue or driving force behind it. One, uh, uh, let me add two additional pieces to this that are relevant to disparate impact and school discipline. And one is that part of critical race theory is that there are systems of power that have um, uh, existed for a long time that have suppressed um, certain groups, particularly um, black individuals. And so they have this, the critical race theory says that these systems of power must be deconstructed, all right? They must be undone. And it's, it's uh, remarkable how you'll see that language used in some of these uh, school districts that are using uh, disparate impact still today. Um, and as you can see, piecing together this idea of systems of power, of seeing the world only through the lens of race, and then applying that to school discipline, that leads us to disproportionality, right? That leads us to the idea that there must be some sort of proportionate uh, impact on students from different ethnicities. And that's what then drives a quota system. Um, and so that that overlap, that intersection is concerning, right? That because that that is a, a philosophy that you can see today in things like the 1619 Project, right? You can see it in things like the Black Lives Matter uh, curricular resources that they have released. Um, the second thing uh, that I would add about that is there is a curious. Um, concept that uh, one of the founders or or main proponents of critical race theory, a, a professor named uh, Derek Bell, once said or, or has, has talked about, and that's that um, we don't need to look necessarily for the, the facts or the truth to help us to understand the world around us. Again, it comes back to our narrative. And uh, that's troubling. It's troubling that there would be a, um, a, a theory that would not make facts uh, its ally. And uh, and that, of course, would have implications across the education landscape. I think that that's so important what you just said. So I just want to reiterate it, that this idea that, that facts don't matter, that the narrative does. I think we are seeing that all over the place these days. I think people are so gripped to the narrative that they have. Uh, and this this view of the world that they have that is sometimes very dark and, and really cynical. Um, that that when presented with facts, uh, they're hostile to it because because it doesn't meet this narrative. And I think that's a I think you and I would both agree that that's a huge problem with our education system, and it's something that our schools uh, should sort of be fighting against and, and certainly not aiding uh, that process of turning of turning people into huge cynics. So, Jonathan, thank you so much for for breaking down this issue for us. I think it's really fascinating. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us on COVID and the Classroom. I look forward to bringing you more essential information for parents, educators, and students during this critical time. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app to receive a new episode every other Monday. If you enjoyed this show, please be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share the show with someone who might enjoy it. We hope to see you next time. COVID and The Classroom is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop.